so what we're doing here today is learning a way, learning a method of how do I heal my emotions when I need to. And, and you, you might have something very present today and you might have something that's sort of, yeah, I could dig it up today. Or you might have like, I don't know. It's, it's not present today, but I'm going to learn about this. I'm going to learn how this works. And then a month or two from now when something's up and you need to heal some emotions about something, you'll, you'll actually have a way of going there. So I once, uh, in my professional training, a psychologist said to me after I taught the method and showed it, showed it with some, wow, this is like five-minute abs for psychology. <laughs> it's like it's very focused. It's very... And it doesn't have to take, um, my, my teacher was a psychotherapist for 45 years, and she said it doesn't need to take a long, long time to heal something. Um, you just need to know what to do and enter in and, you know, follow the process. I think I'm going to just do a little brief little introduction to our model from my friend Dr. Asagioli, because that is the kind of the, the basis of explaining how emotional healing works. This is the uh, picture I hope you keep on your refrigerator to remember how we, how things tick, how we're, how we're hooked up. So Dr. Asagioli, I sort of feel like he's my grandfather or something because I've, st I've studied him so much and he's the teacher of my teacher and so she would refer to him and his teachings and so I sort of feel like I, like I know him you know, and, and like he's like the grandpa in the family. So Dr. Asagioli was uh, one of the enthusiastic exploratory minds of the last century, which began with Sigmund Freud and went on to all the other great psychologists that we know of and have influenced psychology in different facets in different ways. And he, uh, he was a really, really smart man and a really... Uh, big heart and humanitarian. Like he was raised by um, people that were intellectuals and artists and were surrounding, his parents were surrounding his household with artists and music and, and they, they really believed in the power of beauty and music to uh, uplift us and to uh, unfold us, to help, help people become the best that they could be. So from a very early age, he was uh, being raised to, to think about what is the best people can be? What, are, what, can, what is humanity? What, what can we be together? What, you know, wow, how do we unfold what we may be? And when he was 17, he traveled the world and visited Asia and all sorts of different countries and, and was really exploring, you know, world citizenship. Like, what does it mean to be us, the big us, the big human beings that we are? And then, uh, and he was very inspired and excited about that. And he came back uh, and started entering the very new field of psychology with his uh, new teacher, Sigmund Freud. And in the, the second or third year of, of teaching with him, he departed from him because he felt like, you know, Dr. Freud is so interested in our subconscious and in our problems and our traumas and our hidden complexes that are limiting us and stuff. And I'm interested in that too, but I want to be, I'm so interested in human potential, basically. He's one of the first human potential people. I'm interested in what, our, about our talents and our altruism and our idealism and our brilliance and our spirituality. I'm interested in that stuff. And Freud wasn't going enough into um, 
what he would call the higher unconscious. Freud was about the lower unconscious where we have all our buried memories and um, old conditioning and stuff like that. And Asagioli said, yeah, we, I want to I know the human psyche like a building that has an elevator that goes to all the floors, you know, the, from, the, from the deep sub-basement up to the uh, skylight and the rooftops I want, and everything in between. I want a psychology that, that um, understands us on different levels, but also has an intention to be about um, spiritualizing and awakening ourselves to our, our best self. So that's what he was all about. He wrote his first paper on psychosynthesis when he was 22 and, um, and just went into it and explored it, uh, you know, for the, next, for the rest of his life, basically, until he died when he was 74, I believe. Um, <clears throat> and along the way, he went through some um, intense stuff. He was uh, uh, incarcerated by the Nazis for a while. Um, and, and he used that time in prison to explore meditation. He had been introduced to meditation. He'd been introduced to yoga philosophy and Eastern philosophy by um, a, um, a teacher who was um, bringing those teachings to a group. He was in a group for about 20 years with a bunch of people like us that were exploring and, and, try and, and understand, trying to understand human potential human potential in education, human potential in government, human potential in finance, human potential in medicine. They were all like uh, leaders in, in their fields where they were exploring this. You know, what, what are we? And one of his cohorts was um, Rudolf Steiner, who developed the Waldorf education, um, which my, my youngest daughter grew up in uh, school. And that was all about, you know, how does beauty, how does storytelling, how does music, how do handcrafts, the, the holism of the human being, how do, we, how do we grow people so that they're, they're dimensional and whole? So uh, Rudolf Steiner was part of um, Dr. Sargioli's circle of peer students. Yeah, so if you, if you ever read about Waldorf education, you'll see the same stuff that I'm talking about with psychosynthesis. Um, after the war, in which he endured some tragedy, he lost his only son in the war, came out of the, uh, the uh, incarceration and bad situation in, in poor health, but went right back into developing his work, uh, where he continued to um, develop, he, develop it. He wrote many papers, and he cons conferred and consulted with other great minds like Carl Jung and, and Abraham Maslow and people. And, and um, by the end of his life, he was uh, sought after by students all over the world who came to Vienna to study with him. And uh, he, uh, he was sad because his health had been kind of destroyed in the war. And he wished he could have just lived longer and done more, even though he did plenty. And my teacher, Edith, studied with him the last three years of his life. And she said that uh, he was... Uh, he had this depth of a twinkle in his eye. He had, when he looked at you, he was very, very present, and he really took you in, and he had this depth of seeing and understanding someone, but he had this little humorous twinkle in the surface of his eye that um, he really believed in, um, in joy, the psychology of joy and, and humor and contentment, too. So. So that's Roberto, Roberto Asagioli. And uh, 
when he started developing his psychology, his, his peers said to him, Roberto, what are you doing putting the soul into psychology? Like, that's religion, the soul. What are you doing putting the soul into psychology? And he said, I didn't put it in. I never took it out. You know, and you think about psyche, psychology. It's a Greek word. It means of the soul. There's no reason not to have the soul in the study of our psyche, our psychology. His model, in its simplest form, says that we, we live on two levels. We are a personal self, a person with a name and a story and a history and uh, characteristics, strengths, weaknesses. Um, we're influenced by our physicality, what kind of body we have, what our body does and doesn't do, um, by our emotional nature, by our minds, by our energy, our subtle energy. Uh, that's, that's the part of us that we know when we meet each other and say, hi, I'm Mary, yeah, I'm a writer and I teach classes and la la la, that's that. But then there's an eternal part of us. There's a part of us, the soul, which I think he more often called the transpersonal self. This is the personal self and this is the beyond the personal self, transpersonal. Um, but it meant the same thing as soul. And that's the part of us that is like that spark of light, that spark of God that comes from the one source in the universe that we call universe or God or spirit. Um, it's called different things. Uh, and that our soul is always at home. My soul is actually always at home in the heart of God. Now, my person, personality, is on a journey here in the world, and it's struggling with uh, tasks, learning tasks, and lessons, and duties, and um, purposes. Um, but when I want to find peace, when I want to find uh, stillness, and love, and uh, renewal, I need to go to my soul, which is always at home. My soul is always at home in the heart of God. So if you say God is a, a vast field of light, my soul is one little sparkle of that light. And it has the qualities, characteristics of that light. Um, if God was an ocean, a vast ocean of water, my soul would be a drop of water in that ocean. It is both distinct and one. It is both a drop of water and the ocean, because that's how it works. We're, we're part of God. So, so our soul, because it is connected to the source, which is a f source of light and love and renewal and healing, is we have to call upon that when we need to heal something. And our body calls upon it through our immune system. Our body has an immune system. When we get hurt, our body goes, oh, let's make that better. When we get sick, the body goes, oh, let's heal that. Let's make it better. There's a whole system in our physical self that wants to be better. And it automatically starts working unless we have an um, you know, immune system disorder. Um, our, our body starts healing itself. So cut my finger. I just did that the other day when I was in the kitchen. Blood, a little slice there. Ah. Hmm, I can't even see where it was now. It was only two days ago. But what happened? I started healing immediately. I cut my finger and the body started healing it immediately. 
And our emotional life is the same way. When we hurt ourselves, when we are hurt, when we have loss, when we have insult, um, immediately the body starts trying to heal itself. And there's a very clear process. You can see it. And the problem is that it gets interrupted. It gets interrupted because we haven't understood, no, this is good. This is normal. This is what you do. So, so let's think about a little kid who's uh, they're out on the spring day on their, on their bicycle and, and uh, something jumps out in front of them and they lose their balance and they fall and they scrape their knee. Like, ow. <coughs> what do they do? immediately. Scream and cry. They scream and cry. They don't go, I don't know, should I cry? Is it appropriate? You know, they don't, they don't ask, do I cry? The body starts crying. It's discharging the shock of the hurt. It's, it's feeling and discharging the energy of the hurt. So they fall, they hurt themselves, they go, ah! <gasps> We've seen it a thousand times. It's normal. And uh, a wise um, adult will, will work with the kids' process of healing themselves. And, and a lot of us growing up, our adults didn't know how to work with that. So they said, shh, stop it. Don't be a baby. Come on, it's not that big of a hurt. They tried to talk us out of the crying because they were afraid of the crying. They were afraid that the crying was the hurt, but actually the crying is the healing right right so after the kid starts crying what's the next thing they do run to mom run for attention run for attention and they tell the story right I was riding my bike and I didn't see and the thing and I felt and and they're doing this look at they're doing this look at my hurt Look, this hurts. And they're crying and they're asking for attention because attention is healing. And that is why we drag ourselves into therapy groups and 12-step groups and uh, grief and loss support groups and all these circles that we take ourselves to when we're wounded because we need attention. And even if you're in your 12-step meeting and you're only gonna get five minutes of attention, it's still you're in a circle and people are calmly paying attention to you, it's very potent. It's very potent to speak for five minutes out loud in a circle of people that are paying attention. Your hurt starts processing. It starts healing because of attention. So that, that's a normal healing process is, is discharge, ah! you know, running for attention, showing the hurt, telling the story. We tell the story. This is what happened. We get comfort. We get, we get uh, soothed. We get touched. Um, we get compassion. We want compassion. I once saw a child get on the bus and on, on, with their parent. And on the way on, up the bus steps, the child tripped. And um, I think they banged their, their finger or something. And they're like, oh, mother. And they're like, the mother's like, shh, quiet, shh, shh, whatever. And they, they looked for a second, and as they went down to the back of the bus, they stopped at each stranger on the way and said, I hurt my finger. 
and the person said, "Oh, yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah." They showed their hurt finger to like eight people on the way. They knew what to do. It was organic. It was natural. You know, the mother didn't have attention, but <laughs> they got attention, and and that healing process happens. So, um, too often, when we get hurt um, and we have grief. Uh, someone's left us, someone has disappointed us, someone has said something hurtful to us. Uh, we we uh, have not uh, learned to open up and go for attention and say, ouch, I gotta tell you what happened. I mean, as we, as we get more experience with therapy and things like that, we realize, oh, that's a good thing to do. But for a while, sometimes we, instead of what we do is we close off. We you know, put, put ourselves in a little isolation tank. We disconnect from ourselves and we disconnect from the pain or we, we um, have some kind of a shame about it and we don't want people to know that we're hurt, that we're upset and we, and we go away. And that's an interrupted healing process. So, um, so it's, a, it's that, that process of feeling it physically, ouch, releasing it emotionally ah, if you're mad like that I'm talking about you know hurt here if you're mad it's kind of like hey you know if you're mad you need to sort of be vehement you need to like shout a little bit and spit you're spitting mad you know and you break a sweat and speak with your hands and you know uh, you know can you believe that you know so instead of saying well I don't know that was really kind of a Appropriate, you know. But if you were really like in a comfortable place with a friend, you're like, "Can you believe this?" We tell the story with anger present, and anger looks like mm, it's a little fiery, it's vehement, you know. And it it's not reasonable, it's not fair, it's not trying to look at a balanced point of view. It's just going, "That stinks! I hate. Oh, I hate him so much." You know, and it's, it's not your mind, it's your going, now you shouldn't hate people. Now, no, now don't hate people. Well, it's just an emotional release. And when we do uh, forgiveness work, and we're getting with the story, we have an empty chair in front of us instead of an actual person. So we can say, I hate you. I really freaking hate you. How dare you do this to me? Well, because that's <sighs> discharge. I'm sweating now. I just did that. <laughs> just sprouted a little sweat. You know, it's, it's discharging it from, from the body with, with a little fire. You know, it doesn't take long. I mean, it might take 10 minutes. You know, how dare you? And I would never do that to you. And I hate you because when you did that, I wanted to just kick you and say, you stupid idiot. How could you do this, you did this last time? We tell a story and we accuse and we judge and we, and we uh, say violent things. And it doesn't hurt anything to an empty chair doesn't hurt a thing. So, um, and it doesn't last long. It's like, after you've done that for about 10 minutes, you're like, oh, okay, all right, wait a minute. Now, what was I expecting? What, what was, what's the thing? What's the expectation that's been disappointing? Then we move to the mind, and then we name that and acknowledge that, hmm, okay, so that didn't happen, and then we let it go. So this, this is process. So, so this is Dr. Asagio Lee's model where we, we process something with our body, with our emotions, with our mind, um, with our energy, 
uh, there's a there's an energy component that you'll see when we um, do the steps kind of methodically. We call upon light and energy and love from the soul, from from um, the spiritual level, and bring it in to our personality, and it shifts it, it shifts the story, and the, so, so you still have the story. What happened happened, but it's not inside you roiling around as unexpressed energy or unexpressed grief. It's been expressed and now it's being healed. And that's a natural process. So this is like, this is very straightforward if it's something that you know, like you know what happened. You've, I've got this, this disappointment, you know, in this friendship. I've got this, this thing that happened at work and this is the story and I'm gonna work it through and it doesn't take long, and it, and it actually becomes very natural after a while. It's not like you have to, like, sit down and open my book and go, now what? You know, I mean, when you're first learning how to do it, you might want to sit there with the empty chair in my book going, now what? Um, and practicing, but it's, it's very organic. It makes sense. After a while, you just feel where you're at, and you know how to kind of complete this, this um, experience emotionally. Asajeli has another model, which he calls... Um, uh, it's called the egg, but it's the, uh, the egg of, of our consciousness, what we are aware of. So sometimes there's things we need to deal with that are unconscious. They're, they're in the back of our mind. We haven't brought them forward. We don't remember something that is still shaping our experience. So in this understanding, here's the personal self. personality. Here's the higher self, the soul, higher power, okay? And there's this, hopefully, a channel of connection between your personal self and your higher self. This channel of connection between you and you, your little you and your bigger you, is, is facilitated by, by intuition, by, by, um, uh, loving guidance day by day uh, as you as you do your life um, in our everyday life here's my personal self it's Mary and here's my immediate sphere of awareness here I am so I'm aware that the sunlight is out that I'm talking to a circle of nine people that it's Saturday that I'm wearing my jean jacket that later on I'm gonna go out to dinner like this is some immediate awareness I have of me and my day and my life. So that's good. And then out here, further out, is my subconscious, which is stuff that's in the back of my mind. It's not in the front of my mind. And that's kind of stuff like, okay, what was that guy's name in high school? You know, remember that guy? He had blonde hair and he was always really goofy and he brought the thing. And you sort of have this in the back of your mind, you know this guy's name, but it's not in the front of your mind because you don't need it. You don't need to think about this guy. It was back in high school. But you might go, oh, God, yeah. oh, well, anyway, and you're talking, oh, Dave, remember him? Dave Jones, yeah. Well, because you have that information in the back of your mind. And I find that when I'm trying to remember something that's you know, not too present, I'm doing that thing, I'm going, okay, what is it? And I almost feel like I could see the little librarians go back, going back into the stacks, you know, <laughs> going into the files or calling up, you know, from the database, this information. For me, there's like a 45-second delay. It's really uncanny. 
you know, I'll say, oh, God. Well, anyway, I go on. Like 45 seconds later, I go, the it, it, it has, like, produced itself. It's my subconscious mind because we don't need it. It's not, it's not necessary every day. So that's there. And we have what both he and Freud called the lower unconscious. In the lower unconscious, we have stuff that was very important, but we don't need to remember it now. So like toilet training. When you were being toilet trained by your parents, it was, oh my God, it was all the thing for four and a half months. It was what we were all thinking about every single day. And you developed um, awarenesses of your bladder and bladder control. You developed this, you had experiences of running and not having waited too long and having an accident and then learning and uh, riding a bike, learning to ride a bike, learning to drive a car. When you were learning to drive a car, you were thinking about, well, I learned to drive on a clutch. So I was like, you know, what's the, when do you let up on the clutch and when do you slide it into gear and um, this, uh, developing all this muscle memory and it's really awkward and you're just concentrating on it for a while and then you master it and man, it becomes automatic. So all of that is still in there, but it's down here because you don't need it. You don't, you don't need to think, oh, where, where do I do the clutch now? No, you've mastered it. You've developed muscle memory. It's all unconscious. Fine. Okay. But also what is down here are experiences that you had that were upsetting that you didn't know what to do with. You just had no idea what to do with them. They were overwhelming or baffling or um, shaming or traumatic and you couldn't really do anything with it so you just kind of let it drop down there and you forget about it. You've got these couple of stories down here that you don't remember but they might still be informing your daily life experience. I'm going to tell a story of an example of that in a minute. Um, so that's <clears throat> the lower unconscious every now and then and this happens uh, say in um, uh, drug and alcohol treatment, people in, who are like just really lost into drug and drug use and alcoholism are just careening along in their difficult addiction till they get to treatment and they get the drugs out of the way and they get start getting some practices of getting connected and about a year or two after that, out from the basement comes trauma memories. There's a 96% correlation between unhealed trauma and drug and alcohol addiction. And they don't remember it when they're running off to get totally, you know, looped. They don't remember that it's because uh, I hate myself every day because this thing happened and I took it on as a problem that I hate myself and now because I hate myself I go running off and drug myself and this is a problem but if I can get back to the story and, and, and remember well why did I start hating myself well what actually happened well I didn't need to hate myself it, and get healing and attention then there's less charge there's less pull to go and medicate yourself because you have actually like brought something into the light of day the shadow self, the parts of you that you don't want to claim, the parts of you that have been mean or selfish or cruel, um, and you don't even understand why. 
and you don't want that to be you. You don't want to be that person. And so you ignore it and shove it down there and you pretend that you didn't, you aren't that, you didn't do that. Then we have up here, the higher unconscious. Dr. Sassioli was very interested in, wow, the parts of us that we're not aware of that are close to the soul, that are close to the life of the soul, that are, that are inspired, that have gifts, that are artistic, that are creative, that can write music, that can um, uh, get a, a brand spanking new idea, that can invent something that hasn't been here before. The, the pure creativity, that's all up here in the higher unconscious. And we, as we get more masterful in our lives, we are cultivating our everyday life self so that he or she is more uh, uh, effective and loving and um, expressing who we want to be. And from time to time, we are pulling up from the lower unconscious something that has blocked us, and we're healing it. From time to time, we're calling for inspiration from the higher unconscious. And we're bringing an idea down to bear. We're bringing in a new uh, career path, a new um, uh, mode of expression. So, so this is our our basic self, day by day. That is, you know, wanting to be a certain healthy adult version of the best version of me as a healthy adult, and from time to time, healing something from down there or bringing in something from up here. So. I'm going to tell you a forgiveness story that has to do with this. Subconscious is right outside of my daily Saturday in class consciousness that I'm in right now, but I can easily access it. My unconscious, I won't really know. I don't know. Why do I hate myself? Asks the addict in treatment. I don't know. Why do I? Well, then they might uh, enter into a series of therapy sessions where the therapist is, is trying to help them free associate or tease out, or maybe there's hypnosis, or maybe there's EMDR on the technique that helps the brain um, bring forward stuck trauma memories and process them in, in a new way. So there's more and more, in these days there are ways of bringing stuff forward and processing it. So, so here's my story. Once upon a time, once upon a time, I was in my 30s, and I was falling in love with Fred Greco. And Fred Greco is a, a wonderfully emotionally connected person. My husband is like really uh, integrated, emotion, uh, aware person, um, very very tuned in. We call him we call him the girl in our relationship because <laughs> he's the one that wants more intimacy, <laughs> that wants to connect, that wants to be emotional. And I'm like, hey, I'm busy, I'm working. You see, I don't know. <laughs> so, but uh, it was my fortune that you know uh, I was I was kind of disconnected because of uh, various traumas that I had dealt with growing up and the alcoholism in our family. So. Um, as, as Fred and I were falling in love, he at one point said, you know, I'm just, just a little frustrated because you don't, you don't let me see you. Like, you, you know, you're, you're charming and you're talking and we're connecting, but you're not there and you're not 
you're not sharing intimacy with me. Intimacy being that you are able to allow a person to see into you. And you're able to see into them. And you're able to share some energy between you. That's intimacy, a certain amount of transparency in which you can show what's kind of in the different levels of you and, and share love from this place. It's kind of like um, if you had a, a, a pond with clear water, clear water, you can look down and you can see the different layers. You can see the fish going by and the stones on the bottom and the little plants. But if it's all muddy, if it's been stirred up with a stick that is just cloudy, you can't, you can't see into it. So that's kind of like what intimacy is like. And he's like, you know, I, like, I just am starting to feel really soft and comfortable and wanting to like share. And, and then you get all nervous and dash around the room and like, you know, scatter things. It's, it's, this is really unsatisfying for me. You, you know, I need you to let me see you. And I'm like, oh God, <laughs> I'm so freaking terrified right now. Oh, okay, I, I don't know. And so I asked myself, I said, why can't I just relax and let this dear man comfortably see into me, look into me and, and develop, you know, and move from there in, in intimacy and sharing and, you know, closeness. Why can't I do that? I asked it out loud with like really wanting to know. I said to myself, why can't I do that? And I heard an answer come from the bottom of my mind. The answer said, you're afraid that if someone really gets to know you, they'll think you're disgusting. I said, really? I'm afraid of that? I, I, I didn't know that, you know, because it's in the unconscious. I, I'm afraid that I'm actually disgusting, and if the person sees me, they'll probably leave because, ooh, I'm disgusting. That was the word, disgusting. And I'm like, oh, I, why would I feel that way? I don't know. I don't know. But then I, I was really querying. I was walking with the desire to know. So over the next few days, without really pushing it, doing anything special, a memory came to me. A memory surfaced. It came up from the bottom. This little memory of something that happened when I was six. Now, this was not a gruesome, horrible sexual abuse thing or anything like that. It was just a bad experience that I didn't know what to do with when I was six. And what happened was I was six. It was Halloween. And uh, my mom was home with the five younger children than me because we had kids every year. And um, it was Halloween. She had made me a Halloween costume. But uh, I don't know. There was no one there to actually take me around. You know, she sent me out in my little pilgrim suit. She made me a pilgrim suit, you know my bag and I'm about this big I was like the skinniest tiniest kid you ever saw I weighed about 40 pounds in kindergarten really skinny and really sensitive and so she sends me out in my little pilgrim outfit you know to go trick-or-treating in the neighborhood and I took it upon myself to um, go three blocks further to visit my friend from kindergarten I was in first grade and in kindergarten I had this wonderful friend her name was Debbie and she was just she was just a goddess as far as I was concerned. She was this big, healthy, cheerful, strong, confident kid. And she took me, because I was like a little bird, you know, she took me under her wing and kind of got me through kindergarten by being my friend, you know. And she, we'd go to 
school back and forth together. I loved her. I loved her so much. And then um, kindergarten ended, and then she went to the public school, and I went to the Catholic school. And I would ask my parents, you know, I want to play with Debbie. And they were just too busy and checked out. They never really helped me keep up with that. And I just missed her sorely, just really missed her. So it's October. It's Halloween. I'm in my little pilgrim costume. I know where Debbie lives. So I go three blocks out of my way, knock on the door. Debbie answers, and her face lights up. And I'm like, you know, and I said something like, why didn't you come to my birthday party? Because I had sent an invitation to my birthday party the week before. And she was just, just about to answer me. She was kind of like, and then her mother comes. And her mother, like, steps in front of Debbie, shoves her behind her like I'm dangerous, you know. And, and she leans over at me, and she says with rage, you get out of here. You get off my porch. Don't, Debbie is not allowed to play with you anymore. You will never play with Debbie again. Go home. And the, right, I know. And the energy with which she did it slammed me, you know, because it was rage, and it was, it was dominating. And like I said, I was this big and sensitive, and I'm like, and the thought came into my head, she thinks I'm disgusting. I mean, her energy was like, I was excrement. You know, I was disgusting. And, and because she was so powerful, and because I was so open, I hear I was with Debbie, like, hi. I was completely open. Blam! This toxic, mean, rejecting energy comes into my system that I don't understand. And I go home, and I'm just shaking, and I'm confused. And I'm thinking, and I'm believing, because she's an adult, I'm thinking, wow, I, I'm disgusting. I didn't know that. Like, there's something about me that's, dis that's wrong. It's disgusting. Because kids, right, they don't know. They, they're kind of buying whatever the adult nearby with the most energy is telling them. So I went home. I didn't tell my mom, because um, she wasn't really a good person to tell anything to. Um, she wouldn't have helped me. And I just, you know, stuffed it in there. Um, but at, at that age, at that moment in that story, I put up a screen that people wouldn't really see me because if they saw me, they would know I was disgusting. I, this was all unconscious. It's not logical. You can all look, look at me and say, oh, sweetie, you know, that's, that wasn't true. But little kids, little kids, they just, they're in the line of fire of stuff that's going on, you know, around them. And they're, and they're, making decisions about self and life sometimes that no one's helped them see it differently and so you make a decision that shapes you so I said I, I got kind of excited and I said to Fred wow you know I just remembered something I mean like it wasn't like I buried that memory I mean I always knew that happened but I never actually felt it or understood what it meant that this neighbor lady just really yelled at me and made me feel like I was disgusting. And I think it made me very shy and scared of people and, and, and being seen. So, he, you know, I, I to, and I told a friend about it. And she's like, wow, that's weird. I mean, why would an adult do that to you? Like, why, why would that happen? Did, why don't you ask your mom about that? So my mom was still alive. I, I called her up. I said, Mom, do you remember my friend Debbie in kindergarten? And, you know, I, we were really close. And then first grade, I didn't see her. And I, I went trick-or-treating in her house, and her mother yelled at me. And my mom said, oh, oh, yeah. They were so angry at your dad and I 
because we were, um, they were civil rights activists. My parents were trying to open up the suburb of Oak Lawn to sell to black people because my dad had a colleague who couldn't buy a house anywhere in Chicago except for in the slums because of, you know, real, real estate corruption, whatever. My parents had started this, um, you know, uh, organization to open up the town to, you know, not being racist. And she goes, oh, they were so angry at your father and I. They thought we were disgusting. She used the word. They thought we were disgusting. So you see, I came by that feeling, honestly, like someone threw at me a big ball of energy when I was little that said, disgusting, or my parents were disgusting. But none of that was clear to me. I went home. I didn't tell anyone. I walked around for the next two decades being a little shy and hidden and, not, and, and being afraid and having a piece of shame inside me. You know, it was a piece of shame. And when you have shame inside you, you don't want to be seen. You don't want people to see you. So, so you see, here's the story. So then I forgave it. I, I, took, I took that lady in the chair, you know, and I, I did the steps, boom, 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 you know, and I got my ire and indignation and, and sadness out at what she had, you know, done to the little sensitive Mary kid, you know, and, and, and I went through the process and, and brought healing energy to it, and now it was just a story. Now I don't have this piece inside me that is going, oh, you can't see me, I don't want you to know me. That was gone. I was then capable of intimacy. I was actually capable of relaxing and letting my sweet husband see me and being in my, knowing there's nothing wrong with me and, you know, I'm a good person, all the, all the things are fine. And so, so that was um, a very instructive journey for me about the power of the unconscious the lower unconscious. And fortunately, I've had other experiences about the power of the higher unconscious where, you know, something really inspiring came to me in a dream. And I woke up and wow, it was a book, you know, or uh, like my book, The Kitchen Mystic, that came to me from the higher unconscious. I was writing some pieces, one essay a month, and I was, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't know I was writing a book. I was just writing to get clear about some things. And I was those pieces were being um, published in the Phoenix. And um, I was sitting for meditation one day, and I literally saw something like scroll down from the ceiling of my mind, like movie credits. It said, The Kitchen Mystic. Wow. The words came down, and I'm sitting there like, Oh, oh, that's cute. Oh, that totally says it. That says who I am. That says what I'm doing. It's, you know, oh, it's cute. The Kitchen Mystic. You know, and, and the next day I got a call from Hazelden Publishing and they said, we've been watching your writing, it's really good, let's do a collection. I said, I've got a title, The Kitchen Mystic. So that came from the higher unconscious. It came with energy and light and excitement, like I, you know, inspiration, like, oh. And it, and it lives today, you know, it's, it, it really became something for me. So those are a couple stories about the levels of the unconscious and how they might be. Um, holding us back or um, being a source of giftedness that we haven't called upon yet. Ouch, there's something I'm deeply uncomfortable about. I don't know what it is, but I will discover it. You know, we can walk with a powerful query and an intention to clear things up if there's things that need to be cleared up.
from the unconscious. I think that it's quite possible to um, put to rest most or all of your most important stories that have shaped you. Uh, this doesn't happen in one season. You know, I've been doing uh, forgiveness work for 30 years, but I am not doing it every single week. Like, probably twice this year, I'm going to, like, go, oh, I got to do a piece of healing work. And it's going to take me two hours, you know, because it's a big thing that just happened. And, and then I'm going to go on and be in the day, be in everyday life. Whereas when I was first healing my um, background, which was traumatic, you know, I'm the oldest of eight kids in a family with an alcoholic dad and a mentally ill mom. There was um, abuse in the family, in the extended family. There was predators, child predators around. I was at the wrong end of one of them. Um, and uh, other traumatic things, the, thing, the story I just told you, well, that's just a, a little story, but it was huge, and it didn't get tended, you know. So while I was um, first in this work, I was very busy. I was all about emotional work for a while. It was like I was, you know, just I was doing a lot of therapy and a lot of forgiveness work. And after a while, it was, it was so much was settled. I was like, you know, well, what else do I want to do? You know, I want to travel. I want to write. I want to do this. I want to do that. And the, it, the work became more like, well, what's coming up now in the present? Oh, my mom just died. Oh, there's some things that are, have come up because of that. You know, um, our house just got flooded. And we had to move out for four months. Oh, there's some stress around that. You know, so life is lifey. And from time to time, you have to uh, get attention. And heal something but it's not it's not all the time and it's not forever and and I haven't done any like I said this year I probably do two stories that are present that are painful um, that have to do with a friendship that went sour and um, if I don't do that I'll be walking around with a sense of my life being somewhat dimmed my light being dimmed it's really not about pain. It's about joy. Yes. It's about I want to be in the flow of joy and service. Right. And, and I'm doing my healing pain work so for the, to that end. You know, I'm not just like shoveling, you know, shoveling stuff out of the sewer because I have to. It's like I'm, no, I believe in clean, clear flow of water, you know, and I want that.